appreciate it. I thank the band for uh, really setting the stage for worship. I, I really appreciate that. So oftentimes they do that for me. Growing up in a time and an age in a church and a house that kind of kind of unspoken rule that the guitar and the drum were not were less than godly. The electric guitar. Uh, it's, I knew if I hung in there long enough, my generation would win out with the electric guitar. We can actually end... I am living proof that you can worship to the electric guitar and drum. I thank the band for what they've done. And the times they've had me worship, I appreciate that. Yes, sir. I can actually see this time. <laughs> they can't follow along, but I can, I can see. But thank you. Too bright. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you there. I sit out there, I can't see either. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I found out the one good thing about preaching here is that you don't have to do announcements. That's one thing I missed out on the announcements today. And Roger did fill in for us on that. Appreciate that. I did make a mistake last time I preached. The pastor asked me to preach. I mentioned that I had another sermon that I was kind of shelved. And then and, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he sent an email and said, Hey, since you have that other sermon, now you can go ahead and preach that while I'm gone. So that was my mistake. And uh, I hope to correct that next time. Well, this morning we're talking about God's will for our lives, and we're going to lead into that. First, I want to talk about the times in our lives when we really don't know what to do, and we all have times in lives when situations come up, things we go through in life, we're just not sure what to do, and I don't think there's any worse example of that for me than like a new job, and there's times on a new job when you really don't know what to expect or what, what you have to do, and I remember my first week with the company I'm with now, and I've been there for... 24 years now, so that's probably why I don't like to switch jobs, because I know what I'm doing now, so I hate to switch. But my first week, I can remember, it wasn't the first day, but I think it was the third day, I was with a construction crew in the highway, and they, they asked me this day, they said, hey, can you check grade for us today? And I said, yeah, you can check grade. I said, you're right, I can check grade. I was born to check grade. That's what I told them. I'm ready to go. So on the way to the job site, I was thinking, I wonder what it means to check grade, because <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what that was. And once I got out there, the operator found out I had no idea what that was. And he spent the whole day avoiding me because he knew that I didn't know what I was doing. It was at the Carlisle Fairgrounds. If you've ever been out there, we were grading a whole big section of that. And he was on a grader, and I was check grade. And once I started, he would go to the far end of the fairgrounds, and he'd work over there. Then I'd walk all the way over there, and then he would go back to the other end of the fairgrounds. And he did that all day long, and I finally sat down on the guardrail saying, this is a waste of time. Because I didn't know what I was doing, and he knew I didn't know. And I hate those times in life when you don't know what to do. And it's worse when it's one of these life-changing situations. You know, do I buy this house or do I not buy this house? Do I buy this car? Do I keep my old car? Do I marry this person? Do I not marry this person? And it, it would be so nice if God would send a prophet to us sometimes to tell us exactly what he wants us to do. Wouldn't that be nice that someone would show up on your doorstep and say, hey, I got a message from God. <laughs> now, if somebody does that, please don't listen to them. Okay. okay. <laughs> Not in this day and age, but it would be so awesome sometimes if God would do that. When our Bible story we're going to start off this morning, we had a gentleman who went through that exact experience in life. So if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start off with an interesting story from a very interesting character in our Bibles. And this is in the time of Solomon. We all remember from my last sermon, because I know you all remember everything about that, <laughs> that the king Solomon kind of messed up in his life. As he got distracted with all the things in life, trying to pursue all the pleasures in life, he got way off track. 
And God was displeased with Solomon. God's going to raise somebody else to take Solomon's place. He's going to take the kingdom away from the house of David except for one tribe. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to meet our, our story man here today, and that's Jeroboam. So if you have 1 Kings 11, we're going to start with verse 26. I'm going to read. Also Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zariah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. Drop down to verse 37. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires, and you will be king over Israel if you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in the eyes, in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commands, as David my servant did. I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever." Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. Well, Jeroboam has the great privilege of having a prophet show up and say exactly what God wants him to do. God has a plan for his life. God has potential. It's all there for him to be, to be king of Israel. And notice the particulars of this, this proclamation. It says, rule over all your heart desires. Now, isn't, doesn't that sound good? You get to rule over all your heart desires. I think every man would like to do that deep down. And that's what God says is potential for him. Also, I will be with you. God himself will be with you. Just like Moses had God with him all the way, God says, I will be with you in this kingdom. I will build you a dynasty. I will build you a dynasty, not just a kingdom, a dynasty, as long as you obey my commands. And this is probably the clincher for any king of Israel. It says, as enduring as the one I built for David. Now, that means this is not just a chance to be king. This is a chance to be a great king. Because for any Israelite, the highest accomplishment you could do is to be equal with David. To be a king like David would be like being like Michael Jordan of basketball. It is like as high as it goes. Or the Cal Ripken of baseball. Because we all know he was the greatest player ever. Not really. He just showed up for work every day. So this is a great opportunity to be king. And all that's required from Jeroboam is to obey God's commands, follow his precepts, follow his commands, have faith in what he told him, and everything could be right at his fingertips. It's a great opportunity. God had a plan for Jeroboam. So here's the question for us. But does God have a plan for us? Does he have a plan for you? Does he have a will individually for us? Does he have a plan? And if he does, does he want us to find out what it is? Or does he get some kind of pleasure in making it a, some kind of mysterious search that we can't, you know, always trying to find out what God's will is and we, we just can't quite get a hold of it? Or does he have a plan that he wants us to find out? Well, I think the first thing we need to talk about when we talk about God's will is just define what we're talking about with God's will. So what, what is God's will? What do we think about in God's will when we look at Scripture? If, if you study God's will in Scripture 
And if you, if you put all the times that it's mentioned, when it says God's will or will of the Almighty, you're going to find out that it falls into categories. And, and the way I read everything, there's basically three basic categories, and different scholars use various terms for this. But it'll follow into three basic categories. And the first one is God's providential or his sovereign will. Now, this is what always happens. Like when God says, this is how it's going to be, and that's what happens. Because God's providential will always happens. This is the times he gets to say, this is how it's going to be. I'm God, you're not, and this is what's going to happen. And you don't want to get in the way of that one, and we're going to talk more about that later. The second one is God's moral will. And these are the things that God wants us to do, the do's and don'ts of God's will. We all know it's God's will that we don't lie. It's God's will that we be honest at work. It's God's will that we be faithful to other people. It's God's will that we don't murder anyone. These are the do's and don'ts that God has given us. Now, unfortunately, these do not always happen because man is a sinful man, and we fall away from that. Every once in a while in the Christian faith, I'll hear people say that I, they have freedom in Christ, and somehow freedom in Christ means they can do whatever they want. And freedom in Christ... Excuse me, that is not what freedom in Christ is. Freedom in Christ means we're free from what? From sin. We're free from sin, and we're now able to follow a different path than what we had originally. That's the freedom we have in Christ, not the freedom to do whatever we want. There is a moral will of God. And the third one is the personal will or the will of command. That is the, this is what God wants us to do individually. Now, as you look at that list, providential will, moral will, personal, which one do you think we're most interested in? Which one do we want to know? I mean, we want to know the personal will. Personal will of God. That's what we're looking for. What does God want me to do? But this is probably the most important thing we'll mention here today, and that's this. God's personal will for us is always found within the context of his providential will and his moral will. His personal will is always found in the context of those two. The clearer you are on God's providential will and his moral will, the easier it will be for you to understand his personal will for your life. And parents, I hear so many parents over the years that I talk to about this. This is why it is so important to get your children as early as you can and as often as you can into a church or a Bible study or study group or small group or whatever where they're learning about God's providential will and his moral will. Because the clearer they are on those two, the easier it will be for them to discern what God's personal will is for their life. You can't distance yourself from God's word and what God has done, who God is, what he wants, and expect your kids to make wise choices in their personal lives. It's impossible. I've had parents say, I'd say, uh, I missed your kid here, you know, they hadn't been here for a couple of weeks, and they say, oh, well, you know, they, uh, they, I, they, I let them choose whether they come or not. Um, excuse me? Your kids choose whether or not they're going to be grounded in the word of God? They may not want to be here, but I guarantee you, I have had so many kids, and, and Josh, you get bored sometimes in my class, but you are learning God's truth week in and week out. And, and what's really cool about my Sunday school class, it's kind of unusual, that I started teaching Josh in 2000 and, uh, yeah, 2004. So I've had seven years that I've been able to train some of these young people. What a great opportunity it is, and, and, and every week we get to feed them God's word, the truth, and even the weeks they don't want to be here, they're being grounded in God's word. It's easier for them to, decide, to discern God's personal will for their life. It's easier for you to discern God's personal will for your life the more you know about God's providential will and his moral will. And how do we learn about that? We learn about it from Scripture. So you need to be in the Word. You need to be grounded in the Word. You need to be someplace that preaches the Word. And your kids need to be there too. 
So those are the aspects of God's will that we see in Scripture right there. So what is God's personal will for our life? What does it mean to us? Did you say something to me, Jim? It's, it's, it shouldn't be. I should hear amens. That's all this is. Look, I don't stand up here and say, I'm an expert in this. Listen to me, I'm an expert. That's not what I'm doing here. This is stuff I've been studying for, for six months as I struggle through these things in my own life. I want to know what God's will is for my life. We'll talk about it more in the end. So what is God's will for my life? What's God's will that's revealed in Scripture to us? What does God have for you? What does God have for me? Number one is, is saved. It is God's will that I be saved. Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Or you can listen to me read. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting or willing, not willing anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The starting point of knowing God's will for your life is salvation. We have to know Christ as Savior to know God's will. This is the beginning point, and you can't possibly know God's will if you don't know Christ as Savior. God, not in his providential will, but he's willing for us, all mankind, to come to him in repentance. That's God's will for your life. That's the first, first step in understanding God's will. And here's the shame of it. You know, without Christ, the only, God, the only will God has for men and women without Christ is eternity in hell, separation from him. That's the only will he has for them. There's nothing else. Without Christ, the only thing he wills for you is eternal separation. And that's a sad thought. And that should motivate us as we see people around us that don't know Christ. That's the only will they have. And the reason you can't understand God's will is without Christ, God's word and everything in God is foolishness to them. And you can see that on TV. Probably the best example I know, if you know Bill Maher, if you ever heard Bill Maher on TV at all, hear him talk, he... he he had that movie called Irreligious and how he's probably saying that Christianity is a joke and whatever it is. What was it called? I can't even say that, Roger. I'm not even going to say that. You don't know what that, Roger knows what. Right, he was, yes, he was saying that religion was ridiculous. And the thing is, you hear him explain, I've seen interviews that he did with people, it's absolutely foolishness to him. It's completely foolishness to him. And that shouldn't surprise you because he's not a believer in Christ. And without Christ, it's impossible to understand God's will. Because it's foolishness, just like it is to him. Well, accepting Christ as Savior is the first step to knowing God's will for your life because it's the first thing that God has us to do. The second thing, holy smokes, it's early. The second thing is seeking God's will before my own. Seeking God's will before my own. That's in Matthew, if you follow along with me to Matthew chapter 6. This is where I expected it to get quiet, Jim. Because this is the one that hit me the most as I studied this. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Now, these are verses that you know real well. As Jesus is instructing his disciples. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, don't rush over those words. We rush over that. We've got that memorized. I can remember the first time I ever heard the Lord's Prayer really like recited in a group. We, I was in high school football, and it was ninth grade, and, and they said, okay, first game. They said, okay, we're going to pray. I thought, okay, we're going to pray. That's cool. I grew up in an evangelical church, and all of a sudden, everybody started chanting the Lord's Prayer, and I was like, what in the world? That's... I knew I had no context at all with the football game. 
But that's, that was what, that's how people pray. They, they, preach, they pray this exact prayer. But the thing is, in this prayer, don't rush over the words. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a mindset. And this is to be our mindset as we, as we enter into prayer and wanting to know God's will. We're supposed to have the mindset that we truly want God's will to be done first. Ahead of our own will. The question is, do we truly want God's will to be done? Or do we really want God's stamp of approval on our will? Because there's two competing wills in our life. There's, there's my will versus God's will. And the Bible says we're either following one or the other. I mean, look, I know what my will is. I, I can tell you my will. You want to know my will? My will is to have a nice farmhouse at the base of a mountain, not too many neighbors, maybe one, <laughs> that I'm related to. And then, and then, you know, like two new Jeeps in the driveway with lift kits. At least a six-inch on the one. A good job that pays a lot of money. Um, healthy family. They come visit me, and everything's great. You know, that's my will. That is what I want in life. Do I want that, or do I want whatever God says his will is for me? That's the question I struggle with. Do I really want God? Is that really my mindset each day? Do I really want God's will? Or do I just kind of say, like we say, the Lord's Prayer? Because... There's only two choices. We either live for God, his will, or it's our will. There's only two choices. There's no third option. This is a total submission to God's will in our lives. So if I want to know God's will for my life, then I have to truly desire God's will above everything else. The question is, do I do that? The third thing I see is spirit-filled. It is God's will that I be filled with the spirit. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, which I think is a kind interpretation. Actually, he's saying do not be stupid, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, for all you abolitionists, I'm sorry, not abolitionists, you're prohibitionists in here that are totally against alcohol, we're all against slavery. That, you got to know the context of the wine reference in here. The, the context of the wine in here is the church in Ephesus. They were, they were in a culture that taught if you want to be enlightened, you get really drunk. The, more, the drunker you got with alcohol, the more you got drunk, the more enlightened you became. Reminds me of the movement in the 60s with the drug movement with the enlightenment. And that's how they thought in Ephesus. The more you would drink, the drunker you got, the more enlightened you were from God. And Paul's saying, look, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Know what God's will is. It's not that you get filled with wine and get drunk. That's not, the, that's not God's will. God's will is you be filled with the Spirit. Now, we get filled with things all the time. Sometimes you think of this filled with the Spirit as some kind of mystical thing. We have to kind of get in a group and pray for the Spirit to rise up inside. That's not what Paul's referring to here. He's being filled with things like we are with our emotions. Sometimes we get filled with anger, and it affects what we do. And it can carry for a long time for some people. Sometimes we're filled with passion. Look at all the things that have happened between men and women when they're filled with passion. There's been rational things that happen. We can be filled with joy, like on vacation. And that can last so long till you get back to work. And then there's a stack that's high on your desk that nobody took care of. And what happens? The cares of life, and then all of a sudden that joy starts to decline, doesn't it? 
I think the one that speaks to me most is grief. When we lose someone that's close to us, some loved one, you can be filled with grief. And it just consumes you. It can. It can last for months. It can last for years. It can. I, 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 it's the last thing you think of at the end of the day. It's the first thing you think of when you wake up. And grief, you are filled with grief. Paul's saying this. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that the point that the Spirit affects everything that we do. And we're filled with the Spirit. It motivates us in all kind of areas of our life because it's a passion. It consumes. It takes over our life. And that's what he's referring to when it comes to filled with the Spirit. And the question is, how do we do that? How do you get filled with the Spirit? Well, you've got to be in the Word. I mean, that's, that's the main way to get filled with the Spirit. It's not going to happen when you're watching Dancing with the Stars. It's just not going to happen. I mean, if you're not daily in your Bible studying, just reading what God has to say to you in prayer, that's how the Spirit that's already in you, if you're a believer in Christ, that's how he comes to life and motivates and guides us. You need to be in the Word. I can't stress that enough. If, look, if you're, if you're I, was, I was a Christian sitting in the pew that just kind of read the Bible once in a while. What changed my life was when I started to read the Word every day. It changed everything. And it's not because of me. It's because of what the Spirit does as he rises up inside of you. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And actually, that's the only way we can follow the moral will of God. The only way you can follow the moral will of God is to be filled with the Spirit. Because on your own, you cannot keep the do's and don'ts of what God wants. It only comes from the Spirit. So it's God's will that you and me be filled with the Spirit. That's God's will for our life. Well, the fourth thing I see is serious about discipleship. It is God's will that I be a true disciple. That's serious about discipleship. God in his providential will has done all kinds of things in the past. He's got quite a resume. If he was to fill out a resume for a job opportunity, could you imagine what he could put down? Oh, I created everything. I created everything. That's that's God's providential will. He decided one day that he would create something from nothing, the only time it ever happened. Created something from nothing, and he made everything. That was his providential will. Not anything, nobody could do anything about that. One day he decided he would make a nation out of Abraham. Took a guy, the guy said, look, God, I am old, I, you know, I don't even have any teeth left, I can't have kids. And God said, perfect. It's exactly what I'm looking for. A guy that can't possibly have children. I'm going to raise a nation from him. It's going to be a, re- a great nation, and it's going, to, it's going to be my example of how I deal with people in the ancient world before the Bible. Moses and Pharaoh. Remember, God said, I'll raise those people out of Egypt. I'm going to bring them out. And Moses went into Pharaoh. And what did he say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Thank you. You did read your Bible a little bit. Let my people go. Pharaoh said, I don't think so. I think you're going to stay. And God said, okay, watch this. And I think most of us, it would take two plagues. That would be it. Go. Maybe one. Not Pharaoh. He needed all of them. He got all ten of them. And he finds, okay, that's it. Not only go, take, take money. Take, our, take gold. Take, just go. That was God's providential will. Saul and David. Remember Saul was a lousy king, right? And God said, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to get somebody that has my own heart. I'm going to get David as king. And Saul said, well, I'm going to get rid of David. And God said, I don't think so. You're on the wrong side of my providential will. It didn't go too well for Saul. Ends up falling on his own sword. Then we have God said in his providential will, he'd bring the Messiah, right? And Herod found out about that. The Messiah was born. What did he do? I'm going to get rid of all the kids. I'll just wipe them all out. And God said, I don't think so. In my providential will... The Messiah will come through Bethlehem, just like I promised. And then we come to the church. And this is the one we're going to dwell on a little bit in God's providence. In Matthew 16, 
God's going to start something new. And in Matthew 16, it's Jesus with his disciples up on, a, up on a hill probably, and they're talking, and he says, hey, who do you think I am? Who do, who do people say that I am? And that's when Peter says, what does Peter say, Mark? That's right. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And he said, and this, and here we go. He says, and tell you what, Peter, we're going to do something brand new. Your name's Peter, and on Petros, and on this Petra, big rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. And you can just see the disciples there, the golf clap. Church, they said, what's a, what's a church? He said, church, I don't know. And Peter, Jesus, Jesus, come here. Look, I don't know about this church thing. We're here for the kingdom, okay? Um, look, and there's only a couple dozen of us, and we can't even go to the synagogues. And they're trying to kill you. We can't go to Jerusalem. I'd go to the whole world. I don't, I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. We just want the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's going to be great. It's something brand new. And in his providential will, he launches the church. And the Jews couldn't stop it, and the Romans couldn't stop it, and Nero couldn't stop it, and Stalin couldn't stop it, and the communist Chinese couldn't stop it, and the ancient popes couldn't stop it. The modern-day humanists can't stop it, and guess what? The extreme Muslim terrorists won't stop it either. Because you know why? Because it's God's providential will that the church go forward, and in this age, it's what he is using to change the world today. And nothing and no one is going to stop the local church. And I don't mean in the buildings. I mean the church people. It just keeps going and going and going. And here is what's cool about that providential will. It's so easy for me to miss the big picture of what God's up to. It is so easy for me because here's what. God has given you the unique opportunity to participate in his providential will, what he's using in the world today. He's using men, regular people like you and me, because we're just regular people. He's using us in his providential will to change the world. And he's invited us to participate in that. How cool is that? That God uses us to do these works. And they're always right in front of us. And we can miss them if we're not careful. We miss the opportunities that are right in front of us. Because here's the deal. If we, if we drop the ball in this, in God's providential will, he will pass the baton to somebody else. It's what he does. Maybe... Maybe what he has you to do is just to hand off a healthy church to the next generation. Maybe that's all you're supposed to do. But God has a plan for each one of us as we're serious about discipleship. I probably shouldn't say this, okay, but I, I've been in a lot of elder meetings with the elders, and I, 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 I should. I should, because here's what. Do you, what's pastor going to do, fire me? I mean, I'm, what's, what's he going to do? what I'm saying. Do you, know what, do you know what is a discouragement to your pastor? Do, do, you, do you care? Do you, do, you know what, do you know what discourages your pastor? We used to talk about this in our meeting. Inconsistent attendance. Here's why. He's trying to shepherd a flock of people. He's trying to train people, send them out, shepherd them. People come, they're here two weeks, they're not here for three weeks, they're here one week and not here for eight. And he's, He can't tell where everybody is, and he doesn't know what's going on. He, he, he gets frustrated in that. He's trying to shepherd people that don't want to be shepherds sometimes. It is a huge frustration in your past. Do you know that just showing up each week faithfully encourages someone? It not only does it encourage me, but it encourages your pastor. What an awesome thing. Let me ask you a question. This is not about me. 
Has anybody ever been encouraged just to see me go back and teach a class? Just, I mean, I, I'm not doing it for that reason, but isn't it true that you can just see someone serving and say, wow, that's an encouragement to me. And in that same sense, coming each week, be faithful, is an encouragement to your pastor. Just want to throw it in there. That's part of God's providential will of the church. That's what he's about today. He's, he's using the church to change the world, and he uses people like you and me, and that's insane, but that's what he does. Praise God for that. It's God's will for my life that I be serious about discipleship. That's his will for my life. Well, let's go back to our hero, Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 14. The problem with Jeroboam was, see what happened was, the kingdom splits in half, and he does become king just like God said. And he gets part of the kingdom, but he doesn't get Jerusalem. And where is everybody supposed to go for worship time? They're supposed to go to Jerusalem. So he's worried, okay, that's not going to work out. Because if they all go to Jerusalem all the time, they're going to forget about me, and their heart's going to swing back to the other people. And he forgets what God promised. And he's not faithful. So he starts his own false religion with his own false temple, with his own false priest, with his own false worshiping. And God's going to have something to say to him in 1 Kings chapter 14. He sends another prophet. This time the message, not so rosy. 1 Kings 14, chapter 7. Go tell Jeroboam, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, but you have been not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. More evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, you have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. And do you know that from that time that the prophet comes, not one time does Jeroboam ask for mercy. Not one time does he confess his sin. Not one time does he ask for forgiveness. And the legacy of Jeroboam goes down through the ages of a man who could have been somebody special, but turned his back on God's will for his life. And, and the interesting thing is, 200 years later after he's dead, 200 years later, when the Bible mentions a wicked king, it says this, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he continued in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And his legacy, he leaves us a legacy of sin and failure. And here's the point to all that. I don't want to fail at finding out what God's will is for my life. I, I have so many times when I have done that, but I don't want to blow my chances today to be part of God's providential will, what he has for me. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to fail. I, don't, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because I know that my propensity is to miss these opportunities. And I'm going to share something with you this morning. It's not about me. It's about what God does and about how easy it is for me to miss these opportunities. A couple of years ago was the first time that pastor asked me to preach. Now, if you know me at all, this is not my thing. All right, I am not a preacher. I, I pretend to build roads. I don't preach. He asked me to preach... And so what I did was, I did the very Christian thing. I said, I'll pray about it. That's very Christian to do that. And what that really meant was, I'm going to wait two days and tell him no. That's what that really meant. 
So two days go by, and I sent him an email. I said, nah, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not the guy for that, and that's not my thing. Of course, he sends me back an email. It says, no, I, th- I, think, I think you should preach. I think, I think that'd be good. I think you're the man. So this time, I crafted an email. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was, it was, there was logic in there about other people who are better than me, better trained, your style of preaching, people are accustomed to this, and I'm not that, and you know, I'm just a regular guy. And blah, blah, blah. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then I made the fatal mistake of actually praying about it. And as I prayed about it, I thought about it, I felt, God, I felt this tug that I'm supposed to, for some reason, for whatever reason, supposed to get up there and do this. So, so here's what I did. I said, okay. I did another real Christian thing. I threw a fleece out. I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll, I have the email. I'll send this email out. And if he says, well, thanks anyway, maybe next time, then I'll know I'm not supposed to preach. That's what I thought would happen because his logic was flawless. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. But if he says, no, I I still think you're the guy, then I know I'm supposed to preach. So I I fired the email off, and I didn't check my email for a couple of days because I didn't want to see. I came back, and there it said, Dr. Terry Zabalski. I'm like, oh, boy. So I opened it up, and it said, no, I still think you're the guy. So I was like, oh. Now I I have to preach. And I don't know why God has me so often to get up here and do this. I I totally don't. It's not about that. But God has opportunities in front of me for certain reasons, in front of you too. And my propensity is to try to find ways to get out of them. Like, okay, what what excuse do I have that I don't have to, you know, I don't want to go with Jim over to Cameroon. I've got to come up with something. You know, I, I I don't even know what they eat over there. Right? I'm looking for ways to get out of it. I don't want to be that kind of a Christian. And that's how I come up with these questions that I had to ask myself, and these questions really were for me. I want to hear well done. I don't want to blow the opportunities right in front. I don't want my name to be synonymous with what could have been. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and say, boy, if I just had done, if I just was willing to try, you know, Jubilee Day, maybe I should have. I don't want to come to that point where I, I have to say, I wish I had tried. And here's the questions I have that I came up with to ask, really ask myself. Number one, do I really want God's will above anything else, especially before my own will? Do I really want that? When I pray God's will, do I really want? Because sometimes God's will is for stuff to be difficult. And sometimes it's God's will that we go through suffering and be embarrassed and humiliated and and I had to ask, but do I really want that? Is that my mindset when I pray? Is that, is, that, is that what I'm really after? Or do I want my own will? Second question I had, am I attempting to live a spirit-filled life? Am I doing the things that need to be done to have the spirit well up inside of me to live a spirit-filled life? Or do I have so many distractions in my life that I'm so worried about other things that the spirit really doesn't have a chance to rise up? Am I really doing that? Third question, do I want to be a serious disciple of Christ or a half-hearted one? Do I really want to be serious about this or do I want to be half-hearted? Because it's easy to be half-hearted. But what does God say in Revelation about churches like that? I would rather, you're lukewarm. What would you, I would rather what? I would, I would rather you're hot or cold as you are. I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Am I living a serious disciple life or am I half-hearted which one does he deserve does he deserve my all or does he deserve like 25 percent 
The last question is, have I ever put my faith in Christ as Savior? You know, I've, I've been in church pretty much my whole life, and I've, I've heard all kinds of stories. You know, I've heard stories of people that spent 20 years in an evangelical church and never really knew Christ as Savior, and then one day their eyes are open. So I never stand up here and assume that every single person here knows Christ as Savior. Have you ever come to the point where you really realize that you are not good? You know, I mean, we all know we're not good. We just make up excuses why we're not good. Have you ever come to the point where you put your faith in Christ as the only hope you have for salvation? He's the only hope. We're all lost, totally lost without him. Have you ever come to that conclusion in your life? Well, if I want God's will for my life, I need to be saved. I need to be seeking God's will first. I need to be spirit-filled. I need to be serious about discipleship. Because look at it this way. Here's the whole point of what we're saying. If I want to, we all want to know God's will for our life and the things that aren't revealed in Scripture. I mean, I want to know if I'm supposed to buy that big house out in York Springs. Or do I stay where I'm at? Do I, do I go ahead and dive into a six-year car payment on a new Lexus? Or do I keep the piece of junk Jeep that I have now? You know, do I, do I do this? Do I take that job? My situation, it's mostly job stuff. Do I take a new job? Do I stay where I'm at? What's God's will? Should I move to Charlotte, North Carolina? Do I stay where I'm at? If we aren't faithful in the things that God has revealed in Scripture that are his will, how can we possibly expect him to reveal things in his, that aren't in Scripture? We have to be faithful in the things he's already told us if we expect him to tell us the things that he hasn't revealed in Scripture. It's just common sense. Because what happens is once he has my heart, then he can use my life. He's looking for our hearts. He's looking for my heart. And not just occasionally, every 25% of the time. He wants my heart all the time. And then he can use my life. Because then, and here's the thing. We've all failed in this. I mean, we don't sit here and say that we've all fallen God's will. We've all been peddled to the metal ever since. The great thing I found is, and I have a past. I mean, my past isn't pretty. I won't even stand up here and tell you about it. But the thing is, God is much more concerned about where my heart is right now than he is about my past. He can use my past for the good. He can leverage that for the good. I use it in Sunday school all the time. Hey, guys, here's what I did. I mean, I don't get specific. But I, my heart drifted away, and here's what happened, and I use it all the time for the good. God's not worried about your past. He already knew your past. He wants your heart today. He wants my heart today. He wants my commitment for his will in my life. The question is, am I on board to do what he's already told me to do in Scripture. And once I've done that, then I know he can use my life. And here's what I found. Once you're living that kind of life, the moments that I've done that, the rest of it's easy. I mean, if I'm following God's will and I'm spirit-filled and I'm serious about being a disciple, when I see this opportunity to dive into debt and buy this big house, I know I'm not supposed to do that. I mean, it kills me with Christians. <laughs> you talk to people, if you talk in your workplace, I hope you talk about spiritual things in your workplaces, wherever you're at. There's people that profess to be Christians, and they're, 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 making, they're ready to make a decision, like, well, I don't know if I should move in with my girlfriend or not. And I'm like, it's already covered. I'm pretty sure that was written down a couple thousand years ago. That We don't need to wonder whether God wants us to do some stuff because it's already in there. God, let me tell you, God doesn't want you loaded up with debt. It's not because he doesn't want you to have nice things. He, he's already covered that. Way back in, that was probably three, 4,000 years ago that he covered that one question is, is my will versus God's will, which one am I going to follow? My prayer is for you that you'll be serious about your commitment to being a disciple in Christ, just like I want to be. I want you to hold me accountable, and we should hold each other accountable in our commitment for Jesus Christ, because we get one shot at this, one shot. There's no do-overs at the end. 
and forget about the past. The past is the past. You can't change that. God will use that for the good. Just be committed to have your heart right today. And you young people have a chance from here on out to not make mistakes as you go out in life. Some of us can't go back and undo the mistakes we made. But we can start from this day committed to find God's will for our life and to serve him 100% committed. That's what I want to do. I want to have my pedal to the metal the rest of the way for all the days that he gives me. I pray that you would do that too. Let's have a word of prayer.